The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. reading Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning at verse 9 and going through the end of the chapter. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Uh, Ecclesiastes, we are in our last sermon uh, through this book. We've been in the book of Ecclesiastes now. This is our 12th week, and it's been a joy um, to be working through this book with you all. Uh, My name is Gary, one of the pastors here. Again, if you're new to Park Church, I want to say welcome to you. Hopefully you all had a Good Thanksgiving time. Um, As we approach this last chapter in these last few verses in Ecclesiastes, um, I have mixed emotions. It's like Matthew took us three years, and Ecclesiastes is just like a flash, you know, flash in the pan. It's like comes and goes, 12 chapters. Um, And so I feel like there's a lot uh, that God has been doing in our community in this book, um, but also in this season. There's a lot that God's been teaching us as a number of people in our church family have walked through incredibly grievous times. As, as a community, we've felt that uh, as a church family. Uh, all of you in your individual stories have your own you know, beautiful moments you've experienced and the painful moments you've experienced, the joys you're going through and the challenges. And my senses and the feedback I get from people as we have walked through the series is that God's been meeting us in significant ways. And so as we wrap up uh, our series through Ecclesiastes, I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would help us as we consider these final verses, help us to not just kind of move past the things that he's been doing in our heart, but that we'd actually integrate this approach to life, an, an approach to life that embraces the wisdom of not just the beauty of life, but also the pain of life, the darkness of life, the disillusionment, the, the hard spaces, that we'd learn to integrate those into the way we approach life and that we'd get wisdom from it. And so let's pray this morning that Jesus would help us as we wrap up our time in this book uh, to take these messages and plant them deep within our souls. Let's pray together. Um, Jesus, we, uh, we need you and we're so grateful uh, that we can be confident that you're with us. You promised as much. You said, I will be with you all the way to the end. And, uh, and so we lay hold of that promise today and we ask that you'd help us to know that you are with us even now as a, as a good shepherd, as a shepherd who wants to encourage, as a shepherd who wants to correct, as a shepherd who wants to love, as a shepherd who wants to heal, as a shepherd who wants to feed and guide, as a shepherd who wants to nourish. And so I pray today as we Spend time in your word that you, through your spirit, would do that for all of us in all the ways that we need it. And ultimately, that we'd see you, Jesus, we'd see your beauty, your glory, your radiance, and that we'd be moved to to trust you with all of our soul, and that we'd follow you in every area of our lives, and that we'd do it with joy. Pray you'd help us in that way. In Christ's name we pray, amen. And we live in a culture that likes sharing things, not like um, toys. Kids don't like sharing toys, but you should, kids. You should like sharing toys, but it's hard. You're learning. Uh, But we like sharing things like content. Uh, We share videos we saw on YouTube. We share recipes we found. Uh, We share uh, Zillow listings. Uh, We share podcasts that we've heard. We share Spotify playlists with one another. We we share things, and we share things when we we find something valuable. 
When we experience something that, like, I liked this, it was helpful for me, it was inspiring to me, it was funny to me, it was entertaining to me, and I want other people to experience what I've experienced. And so we have, these days, just these little share buttons. You can just share stuff with people. You can share it publicly. You can share it specifically with somebody. You can share TikToks. I think that's a thing still. I don't know. Um, Instagram stories and posts. Like, you can... You can share stuff, and we do it. This isn't new. Uh, we've been sharing things for a long time. When I grew up, uh, if you wanted to share music, you would listen to the radio, and you'd wait some countdown program, and you'd record, and then you'd put together what's called a mixtape. And it was like a legit tape, and you'd arrange your songs and record it, and you'd share your mixtape with your friends or your, your loved one. You know, you've got your summer mixtape, and you've got your, like, love mixtape, and you've got your whatever, right? All for One was all on my, like, mixtape as a kid, if you guys remember that. Anybody remember All for One? Anyway, mixtapes. Later, we got Napster. Anybody remember Napster? Right. Napster is where you could illegally download music from people like Metallica, and... Uh, which they had a problem with that. They sued Napster. But we'd illegally download music and then make copies of it for ourselves and our friends. I mean, people would, not me. People would. People would. And you'd burn these CDs and give them to your friends, you know, back before everybody paid for streaming services. So, uh, and uh, when musicians got paid. So, we, um, we would share things. Uh, sharing things isn't just like been around for a little while. It's, it's always been a thing, right? Uh, the whole Bible exists with letters being shared. Like, hey, we got this letter from the Apostle Paul. You should read it. And so people would copy it and share it with other people. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the only books, maybe the only book in the Bible that's explicitly framed as the sharing of content. It's the sharing of content. It, what we're entering into in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, 9, 9 through 12, is a new voice in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has two distinct voices. One is the sharer, and the other is the preacher. And then the sharer, we talked about him at the, at the beginning of the series in chapter one. Uh, you could call him the author, you could call him uh, the frame narrator, but he shows up in Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse one, and he introduces you to like a podcast sermon. He's like, hey, I've got a sermon I want y'all to listen to. And that shows up in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. And he introduces you to the preacher. Or some of your Bibles say the teacher. The Hebrew word is kohelet, which means the assembler, the one who assembles people. The Hebrew word kahal is an assembly. The kohelet is the one who calls and leads the assembly. So the Greek word for the assembly is the ekklesia, where we get the word church. And so the, the Greek word for the, the one who calls the ekklesia is ecclesiastes. It's where you get the name of the book, Ecclesiastes, the, the assembler. So in chapter 1, verse 1, this frame narrator, this author is like, hey, everybody, I listened to a sermon by this guy, Kohelet, this teacher, this preacher, and I think you all should give it a listen. It has wisdom. And so from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8, you've been hearing a sermon from Kohelet, the preacher. And now what we're getting to in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9, is that frame narrator circling back and saying, hey, that was kind of wild. Let's chat about it for a second. Let's chat about it for a second. And so what I've been asking as I've kind of been studying through this is, what about this message from Kohelet made this frame narrator so excited to share it? Well, why would this frame narrator, there's documents and people would write stories and there'd be philosophical musings about life from all sorts of people, from within the Hebrew tradition, the people of Israel, from the Greeks and from the Persians and all over, there are people contemplating and musing about life. And this frame narrator, this author, read this message from the preacher and thought, y'all gotta hear this. You gotta hear this. Why? Why was he so keen on sharing this particular message from the preacher? Or, or maybe another question, another way we could ask it is, why is the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible? It's a weird one. It says weird stuff about life. It says dark things. It, th it says things that feel like very, on the surface, like unchristian. It's super dark. It sounds at times really cynical. It is in moments really depressing and, uh, and painful to read. It's at times you read it and it's just like it's uncomfortable. Well, why is it in the Bible? A lot of people have asked that question for a long time. And maybe, maybe even another way we could ask it 
And the way I don't, I don't want to ask it today is why is the message of Ecclesiastes so important for us? For Park Church here in Denver in 2023, why do we need the message of Ecclesiastes? I think we desperately need it. I think we've desperately needed it. And some of you have felt that. You've resonated with it in a lot of ways. Some of you have been pretty uncomfortable with aspects of it. Most of us have had mixed feelings. Parts of it have been uncomfortable. Parts of it have deeply resonated with our experience and the, and the things that we kind of want to think about. Whatever the case may be, the fact that it's in your Bible and the fact that this frame narrator wants to share it and the fact that we're working through it here is because we believe, and I think in God's design, we desperately need the message of Ecclesiastes. And what we're finding in these last few verses is the why. Why do we need it? And so I have three kind of descriptions or three maybe ideas of why we, Park Church, you, as an individual living here and now in this world, need to integrate into your life the message of Ecclesiastes. And so the first is simply this, that Ecclesiastes is brutally honest and beautiful. It's brutally honest and it's beautiful. And it's claiming that life under the sun here on this terrestrial ball is a vapor. It's a vapor. And that's the honesty and the beauty of it. Look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. So this is the frame narrator circling back. I want to show you a couple things just to kind of situate it. If, you're, if you don't have a Bible, grab the one in front of you or flip to one on your phone. Um, I want you to see a couple things that are happening in this passage. We'll draw attention to it and then kind of hone in on this idea. Look with me, actually, we'll kind of back back up to verse 8. This is the last sentence of the preacher's sermon. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Or some of your translations will say, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, all is meaningless. Uh, the phrase there is vapor of vapors, says Kohelet, the assembler, everything's like a vapor. If that sounds familiar, it's because he's repeated that phrase 30 odd times throughout this book, and it's what he actually began in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, after the frame narrator says, hey, y'all, I want you to hear this, he starts off his whole message saying, vapor of vapors, says the preacher, everything is vapor. And so he's framed the whole entire message of his sermon around this envelope structure. They call it an inclusio. And this inclusio, these bookends, where you have the, the kind of theme statement that frames the whole thing, and his contention is that life under the sun as we live is like a vapor. It's like a vapor. And that's a humbling and sobering reality, but it's honest. It's honest. As he's looked at life and as he's assessed it, what he decided as he sought wisdom, as he observed and contemplated and thought and prayed, as he listened to other wise people talk, as he listened to stories being told, he thought, what's a good metaphor? And it's maybe at some point in his life he thought, life's kind of like kind of like a vapor. It's like a, a, a fog in the morning that appears and it's there and, the, and then it blows away. Or it's like the smoke that comes out of a pipe where you, you smoke and it comes up and you can't grab it and you can't predict what's going to happen. It's just there for a moment. Or it's like your breath on a cool morning like today where you wake up and you step outside and you're scraping off your car and you blow the, 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 the breath out and it condenses the air and you see it appear and it's gone. That's that's kind of what life is like. And it's like he explored that metaphor for 12 chapters to talk about the nature of life. And so look at what he says here as the frame narrator circles back and he's just contemplating the message of the preacher. And he says this, verse nine. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly, he wrote words of truth. As uncomfortable and as cynical and as dark as many of the thoughts that we've been exploring for the past 12 weeks might seem, the contention of the frame narrator is like, here's why it's helpful. It's because it's, it's true. It's true. Life is like a vapor. Life is uncontrollable. That might be uncomfortable for you. 
as you're trying to control your life and arrange your life just so, and if you can get your family just so, and your income just so, and your retirement just so, and if you can get your career exactly what you want it to be, and if you can get your house where you want it to be, and if you can get your friendships, and if you can get it all just like this, then everything will be good. And it's like, that's great, but remember, it's like a vapor. It's uncontrollable. It's uncontrollable. You can't control your relationships. You can't control your career. You, you can't control your family. You can't control all the outcomes of your life. That might be humbling, but it's true. It's, it's brutally honest. It's uncontrollable. It's also unpredictable. It's unpredictable. You could kind of live your life and somebody side by side could make essentially the same kinds of decisions and the outcome of one person's life could look radically different from the outcomes of another person's life. You can't predict it like, like vapor. You just can't predict vapor. You can't control vapor. You can observe it. You can see it. It's there. It's real. So throughout the book, they'll say things like this. Ecclesiastes 8.14 says, there's a, there's a vapor, there's a hevel, there's a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vapor. It's unpredictable. It's uncontrollable. Or Ecclesiastes 9.11 says, Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. This is like vapor. You can't control it. You would expect when you set out to run a race that the fast person is going to win the race, but in life it doesn't always work like that. You'd think if you set everybody up and you found this person that's super intelligent, you said, everybody work hard and see how much money you can make. You'd imagine that intelligent person's going to like make all the money. It doesn't always work like that. You'd imagine that the, the bread is going to go to the wise, the person who can sort through how to live and be thoughtful, that there's going to be provision and everything's going to go well. It doesn't always work like that. You live in a world where a 22-year-old can make a fortune off of Bitcoin and a 55-year-old who's worked faithfully for decades can lose their job in corporate layoffs and struggle to make ends meet and provide for their retirement. That's the world you live in. It's just uncontrollable. You live in a world that's full of just complex realities, beauty and pain. You live in a world you can get a double-double at In-N-Out animal style. And you live in a world you can get really high cholesterol and heart disease. Like these both exist in our world. And you have to, like, make sense of that. And, the, and Ecclesiastes is just saying, this is real. Go enjoy the hamburger, but you might get heart disease if you get an animal style and a double-double. You could actually, I think, get, like, a triple-triple, maybe even a quadruple. Is that real? Somebody with high cholesterol? Answer? Okay, Neil. Um, <laughs> quadruple, quadruple animal style. Try it. Don't try it. Not, not recommended. This is, it's a weird world. It's a weird world. Do you live in a world where, where you can be born in a place where like, man, you're, you live in an area and there's good schools, public schools around you and other things and opportunities are just around you. You could be born in Gaza, in Palestine, and be in a place where you are devastated by centuries-long contention and strife that's bubbled up right now in a way that's so painful for the people of Israel and the people in Gaza. And you can, like, how do you, you didn't control not living there. The people born there didn't control not living there. They didn't, like, pick that. Time and chance happened to them all. It's brutally honest. It's hard to deal with. And the way that the book of Ecclesiastes frames the whole thing is, is in a way that's being honest, but it's being honest in such a, <laughs> such a beautiful way. It's like inspiring. It's breathtaking. Look at what happens here in the passage. It says this, besides being wise, the, preach, pe the preacher also taught the people knowledge. So it's a wisdom, there's knowledge. Later it talks about uprightly, like with integrity. He wrote the words of truth. He's not trying just to be like a Debbie Downer killjoy that's crushing. He's just trying to be like, hey, y'all should look at life more honestly. There's dark stuff, right? Remember when we talked about there's like monsters lurking in the shadows all around you and we need to get more honest about that. Hard stuff happens. Pain happens. Loss happens. Devastation happens. Death inevitably will happen to all of us. It's all real. But he does it. Look what it says. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. He just commends the work of the preacher the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes to say that the, the, 
the work and the effort and the wisdom to collect wise sayings and to observe reality and to arrange those sayings with, with beauty and artis, artistry. It says he, he wrote words of delight, that there's a beauty to the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope you've seen that. There's like the opening poem in chapter one is this beautiful poem about just the cycles of life that we come on the scene as human beings and we go off the scene and generation after generation comes on the scene and off the scene and meanwhile the mountains stand there unmoved unchanging. Or in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, talking about these seasons of life and the beauty of the seasons. There's times for war and times for peace and times for love and times for hate and times to build up and times to break down and times to gather things together and times to cast them away. It's beautiful. Or what we looked at last week, this devastating poem about the breakdown of the human body that's cast in this metaphor, this apocalyptic metaphor of the desolation of a brewing storm that's coming to desolate a household and that that household represents the human body and the human life and the death that inevitably will take us all back to the dirt from whence we came. It's beautiful. It's painful, but it's beautiful. And I want to just like offer something to you as, as the frame narrator commends the beauty and, and the wisdom and the care of, of the message of Kohelet that the Bible is, is beautiful. The Bible is beautiful. Might not always seem like it. My guess is if you read through Ecclesiastes, many of you would be like, that's kind of confusing and overwhelming and dark. And then when you slow down and just like linger a little bit, just instead of taking kind of the posture of like, that's confusing and I don't get it. What if it's like, that's hard for me to understand. It might take a little bit of work. If you take a posture of like, I want to I dig a little bit. The Bible is full of beauty and treasures and riches. Like there are gold flakes and gold nuggets right there on the surface for everybody. But it's framed as Hebrew meditation literature to spend your lifetime meditating, digging, learning, growing, seeking to understand. And after a lifetime of learning to read the Bible and to study it and to linger on it and to wait, even the most confusing parts, even the most daunting parts, even the parts that feel a little bit disorienting and difficult to understand, are full of treasures. It's like when, you, when you're kind of like looking for gold and you see that gold nugget there and that gold nugget there, but you see this rock over here that's kind of weird and you don't know what to do with it. Just linger a little bit and you might see like a little vein of gold and then dig a little bit and next year dig a little more and just linger, just believing that there's beauty. That the Bible is written as human authors and the divine author together in this beautiful way that brings something that's so compelling where the, the genre of literature, you might be reading in like Leviticus, and you're like, the Bible's confusing, I don't get it. You're like, okay, it's, Leviticus is weird. You're reading ancient Near Eastern law code. Are you familiar with ancient Near Eastern law code? You're like, no, like, okay, so then the first time you're reading it, it might be a little weird. Like if you read Dostoevsky, if you read Brothers Karamazov and you got like a chapter in, you're like, I don't get where this is going, this is dumb, he's a horrible author. You're like, okay, like, Anybody that knows anything about literature is going to disagree with you. That Brothers Karamazov is like bad literature. You just might not yet be ready for Russian novels. But learn. And maybe in time you'll appreciate the beauty. The Bible is not like this Russian literature that's impossible to grasp on your first read. It's accessible. That's what's beautiful about the Bible. It's layers of rich meaning. Layers Learn to linger on it. Learn to appreciate it. Learn to engage it. When it's confusing, instead of standing as the critic of the Bible and saying, that's contradictory. I read a law in Leviticus that talks about these rules, and then I heard in the New Testament that it's all about love. It's like, okay, well, it's not, it's, not the, it's, more, it's more complex than that. But if, if you're young and new to the Bible, that's okay. But just linger. Have a heart, like maybe there's more there than I know. And maybe the Bible's framed as a, as a book that gives dividends and tre treasures and riches the more you linger, the more you meditate through a lifetime. Enjoy it and learn to appreciate its beauty. I want to kind of give just like a practical thought on this because I think it's meaningful. Just to see the way that the frame narrator talks about this is, I, I just think, interesting. 
Because he's, he's commending the beauty and the wisdom of like the way that Kohelet, the preacher, arranged and sorted through. And it wasn't just like one day, like heard from heaven, like tell me the next word, next word. There's, there's human agency and divine inspiration that are working in tandem to produce this, this, this message that's there for you to like glean from. So here's a, a few thoughts of how do you come to appreciate the beauty of the Bible? Number one, come to church regularly. Like this is what we do Sunday after Sunday. We worship Jesus because he's worthy. We worship him, but we also sit under the authority of his word together and we dig into it together. It is a, a privilege, a great privilege of my life to be afforded by you all time and space with, with others in our preaching team to study and to dig and to try to understand and to, to take the resources and the, and the tools and, and to hone them over time and to try our best to say, here's what God's word says. Look, look at what it says. It's useful. It's practical. It's helpful. And it points you to Jesus. And we try to do that week in and week out. Engage in that. Come with your heart receptive to the, to the word of God. Engage in that. But it's not just what you get on Sundays. Learn to read your Bible regularly, daily, for a lifetime. You might say it's hard to understand. Okay, right now it is. The more you learn, the more you engage, the more you read over a lifetime, those parts that felt confusing, maybe not even accessible to you, just like I didn't get anything out of that. That's okay. Just keep meditating and lingering. Do that for a lifetime, and you'll find the Bible becoming more and more rich. If you, as a, as a young human in this life, decide out of the gate, the Bible's too overwhelming for me. I think about high schoolers, college students, people that are new to just even kind of reading literature like this. It's like it's overwhelming. If you decide to push away from it and just reject it, you're going to be missing the beauty and the richness of God's Word. If you decide rather to say, okay, I'm going to commit to just like a lifetime of learning and growing, there's a beauty there. Another practical tool, just get a study Bible. Get a study Bible. If, if you're new to the Bible, just grab a study Bible. It's a little notes right there on the same page about help you understand things. Oh, I didn't realize that in the ancient Near East, that's how that worked. Well, I didn't realize that in Greek letters in the Greco-Roman world, that's how they'd kind of start things off regularly. Or I didn't realize that that image would have made the people in the original audience think like that. I didn't realize that. People do know that, and they're offering that kind of help in something like a study Bible. And this is the last little um, thought, and this is just something I appreciate uh, as a family for my own kids, because a lot of my journey, even academically, was understanding the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament of the Bible. So a lot of my academic life, and so seeing the Bible as a unified story is like a passion of mine. And there's this incredible resource available to you called the Bible Project, um, which, you know, you can have disagreements with minor points here and there, but the Bible Project is as a resource where they have videos that my kids watch a Bible Project video literally every day, every morning. So part of their like morning routine, they'll watch the Bible, and they've watched through all of them a bunch of times. And they have overviews of books of the Bible, they have overviews of themes and their contention, and I wholeheartedly agree that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. It's something that helps you begin to appreciate the different parts of the Bible and how they fit together and work together and I think in a really helpful way. It's just another tool to learn to appreciate the beauty of God's word. So, the book of Ecclesiastes, why, why do we need it? Because it's brutally honest and because it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's teaching us to approach life as, as a vapor. Second thing that's contended in these last closing verses, starting in verse 11, look with me at what it says. It says, the words of the wise are like goads. What's that word? Well, let's chat about it. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. So my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of the making of many books, there is no end. In much study, there is a weariness of the flesh. There are all sorts of philosophical musings and documents being written. He said, hey, you could write about, you could observe about life. You could try to like get your mind around everything. Like at some point, you just got to stop and you just got to live. Okay? At some point, like the learning and trying to figure it all out, you can almost approach learning and figuring things out as, like a, as an exercise of control and an exercise of anxious energy to try to, if I, if I can just understand it all exactly right, then I can arrange everything. And there's like an anxiety that says, hey, you could write books about it forever. You could read about it forever. We've said enough. Ecclesiastes, that was 12 chapters. That's good. Like, take a deep breath and receive it. 
And what are we receiving? He says, these words are like goads, like nails firmly fixed. And so here's the second reason why this is helpful, is that it's painful and helpful. Why do we need Ecclesiastes? Because it's painful and helpful. I'm, I'm not a masochist. I don't like pain. But, but I, my best friends in life, and my wife supreme among them, are people who will challenge me, who will push me, who will confront me, who will say hard things to me, who will say things that make me feel uncomfortable and disoriented, who will point out aspects of my own life that aren't healthy and aren't right, and it's painful. But that pain is helpful, and that's what he's saying right here in the passage, that these words are like goads. What's, what's a goad? A goad is like, um, it'd be a stick with a bunch of points in it. So when I was thinking about what's a stick with a bunch of points in it, here's the image that came to my mind. This is Steve from Stranger Things with his bat, uh, with which he would battle the Demogorgon. You guys remember season one, right? It's a stick. It's a baseball bat with nails sticking out of it. That's like what I imagine as a goad. It's a, it's a pointy stick with nails firmly fixed in it, right? That's exactly what he's saying. This is, the next image is maybe a little more historically accurate, but way less interesting. Um, <laughs> just a stick with like a spike at the end of it. So you'd have a, some spikes at the end of a stick, and that's a goad. And a goad was used to poke animals in the right direction. Hey, you're veering off this way. There's a cliff over there. Poke it away from the cliff towards the green pasture. The shepherd would use the goad to point ox or sheep or goats and to push them to the direction that they need to go, where they're going to flourish and thrive and to keep them away from dangers. It's painful, but it's helpful. It's painful that it's helpful. That's what Ecclesiastes is being offered. That's what the, the frame narrator is circling back at the end and saying, hey, I know that it's a little painful. That was a little disorienting, but it's for your good. It's in the hands of the one shepherd to point you in the right direction. So what, what is the helpfulness of Ecclesiastes? The helpfulness of Ecclesiastes has been all around us, and the idea here is, and maybe one of the most, I think, powerful things for us, is it's called to stop chasing the wind. Stop chasing the wind. It's honest about the disorienting nature of life. It's honest about the kind of the vapor nature of life because we spend so much energy chasing after things that cannot satisfy. We spend so much anxiety stressing about all of our resources and our job and our friends and our house and all these things that are like, they're gonna come and they're gonna go. It's not saying that they're unimportant, but you are chasing the wind. You're like, what does that mean? Well, just think about it. When the wind blows, can you grab it? No, I mean, you could chase it, but like that's an exercise in futility. I mean, that's, that's just, it's a waste of energy to chase the wind. And this is helpful because it's kind of poking away. Hey, church family in Denver, Colorado, in 2023, we do a lot of chasing the wind. There's a lot of anxiety and energy and toil and stress trying to make life keep moving up and to the right. Like this kind of like, if I just keep progressing and upgrade my lifestyle and take the next step and progress and achieve and accumulate and progress and achieve and, and accumulate, then my life will be amazing. It's like, it's not like that. Just look at human history, observe the people who have progressed, who have achieved, who have accumulated all the experiences, the wealth, the possessions, the relationships, the pleasures that you long for. Ecclesiastes has said again and again and again, that's like chasing the wind. These pleasures won't ultimately, ultimately satisfy. And so it'll say instead, how about try this? Better is a handful of contentment than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Said that, chapter four. Better is a handful of contentment than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. And so we started talking about what would it look like to live with a handful of contentment and gratitude and a handful of like purpose and contribution. Work your job. Get your house. Start a family. Engage in this world. Do meaningful stuff. That's a gift. What a gift. But you're not going to build this life and all of a sudden feel like, I finally arrived. The people who have acquired and accumulated what you want to often are people struggling with incredible disillusionment, depression, and despair because the energy they expended to get to that point was so much and to finally arrive at that point and still feel empty and unsatisfied is a devastating prospect. And that's what Ecclesiastes offers. It's painful, 
but it's helpful wisdom. We don't have to keep doing this. It offers wisdom like this, like life is full of seasons. It's full of like these kind of macro seasons of like the springtime of life, your young years where you're growing and investing and building and, and building a life that's beautiful. And then the summer years where you're enjoying the life you've built. And then the fall years where you're beginning to feel things fade away and slip through your fingers and the leaves are falling. And then the winter years where you feel the, the vulnerability and the coldness. And then, and then you walk out into that final winter of death. It's got that macro season of life. It also has these micro-seasons where you could be a 14-year-old and be going through incredible pain and difficulty with your family and division and chaos in your home, trying to navigate that as a teenager, trying to sort through how to survive and how to adapt and how to make your way through it. That can be a real painful thing for a young person. So you could be at this stage of life right here and going through your own little fall or winter you could be in middle of life where you're surrounded by like gifts and you got family and a job that you like, but you're feeling just spiritually just dark and kind of empty and a little bit disillusioned and confused. All right, you're in a fall, maybe a winter. It just prepares you. Like that's, that's hard. That's helpful, isn't it? Just to know life is full of that kind of stuff. That's what Ecclesiastes has been offering us. We need to integrate this stuff into the way we approach life. It's hard. But it's helpful. But Ecclesiastes has also been helping us to understand, like, what, so what do you do with the gifts? It's not just poking holes. It keeps saying, you know, six times throughout it, it keeps saying, hey, go eat your bread and drink your wine with joy. Enjoy, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Enjoy your work. Enjoy the toil. Enjoy all of it. Or even the chapter we looked at in chapter 11, it's like when you're young, rejoice in your life. You've got life ahead of you. What a gift. You, you have friends and you're in college and you've got this new career and you've got this new relationship and you've got this new opportunity and you move to this new city. What a gift. Love that. Love it. Enjoy it. Rejoice in it. Live it. But remember that those days are also fleeting. The day will come, says in chapter 12, verse 1, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in these days. These aren't as fun as those days. Maybe there's new wisdom and there's life and there's joy and maybe there are grandkids and maybe there's, there's this sense of growth and this sense of contentment and peace, but also you feel the breakdown of your body. You feel the illness. You feel new experiences. You feel that the, the hum of the house is gone. You find yourself more lonely and more kind of contemplative in this stage of life. Okay, when you learn to embrace these as a part of life, you will learn to live with a new kind of wisdom. And Ecclesiastes has been offering us that wisdom. Like goads that say hard things, but they're pointing us in a healthier direction. It helps us to enjoy gifts, but not to expect the gifts that God has created in his world as evidence of his goodness to replace God as a creator. The gifts of this life, your career, your home, your possessions, your relationships, what a gift what a gift. They, they can make incredible gifts. They make really crappy gods. Really crappy gods. They're not going to satisfy you. They're not going to give you an ultimate sense of security. They're not going to give you a real sense of meaning. And in the end, in those later moments of life, whenever that comes for each of us, you'll have to let them all go. All of them will slip through your, through your fingers like, like vapor. So where is our hope ultimately found? And that's where he, where he leads us at the end. He said, okay, these, these messages, this message is like a goad. It's, it's pointing you and poking you towards helpful things. And ultimately, this is pushing us towards an unshakable hope. Ultimately, Ecclesiastes, the last reason why it's helpful is it pushes us towards an unshakable hope, calling us to trust in Jesus and to follow his way of life. Look at how he ends the passage. Verse 13, closing of the book. The end of the matter all has been heard. We're all right, folks. We're all done. We've said enough. We heard it. Thank you, Kohelet. Many thanks to you for your wisdom. What's, what's the bottom line? And the frame narrator says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of humanity. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The conclusion after kind of contemplating life under the sun. Here you are living your life in the midst of a complex world of beauty and brokenness, joy and pain, healing and laughter and sorrow and weeping, birth and life and thriving and decay and deterioration and death. These all exist. And so what do we do in that kind of a world under the sun? As we're just navigating, what do we do? And he says, fear God and keep his commandments. 
This is it. This is what you're created for. The idea of fearing the Lord may be a little bit confusing. If you're new to the Bible and new to that phrase, you're like, fear God, that feels, that doesn't feel good. The Hebrew idea of the fear of the Lord is is a complex idea. It does include some, some sense of trepidation and the sense of humility as a creature before the creator. But it has this idea of approaching God with a sense of humility and reverence and awe and wonder and adoration and delight. It's this mixed kind of like image of approaching the creator as a creature and approaching the creator as the one in whom all things exist, by whom all things were created, for whom everything is here. And to say, I'm here on this earth and I can't control you. So we saw this in Ecclesiastes chapter five. It says, you are God in heaven and here am I on earth. I'm gonna let my words be few. Some of you are like, I I wish you'd let your words be few. Um, (laughs) Well, that's a misinterpretation of the passage, but I take your point. I take your point. Saying you can't control God. You can't manipulate him. You can't like do your life this way and get him to owe you something. If you work through your life and you're like, I did all the right things, now you owe me this perfect life. We live in a world that's just, it's not how it works. We live in a world that's under a curse. It's subjected to futility. We just read about it in the assurance of pardon. You live in a world that because as human beings, we rejected our creator. We rejected his love and his authority over us. He created us to walk with him in humility and reverence and delight and awe and wonder and enjoy and in this intimate relationship of love, but also to submit to his authority as the creator who designed us, who made us, who determined how you are to live and how you are to function. When everything and everyone obeyed the words of the creator in the beginning, it was really, really good. Do you know when things got really, really bad in our world? Is the second humans decided we're not gonna submit to the authority of our creator anymore. We're not gonna enjoy his love, his security, his life. We're gonna do it our own way. And then now we we hear this voice of this enemy in, in Genesis chapter three, who's prowling through the garden and saying, God did not surely say, He didn't surely say. Surely obedience to the authority of God isn't that big of a deal. You won't surely die. These are the messages that permeate our culture. We approach the Bible with surely God didn't say. Or surely it won't be a big deal if I do it my own way instead of the way God designed me to do it. He's not this cosmic killjoy trying to give you arbitrary rules. He created you to thrive and to experience life as we walk in his love and under his authority. So as soon as we reject his love and his authority, we introduce into our own life all the opposite of what his presence brings. We introduce, if his presence brings love, we introduce hatred and animosity and division. If his presence brings life, we introduce deterioration, corruption, disease, and death. If his presence brings security, we introduce chaos and insecurity. That's, that's we did that. We did that. And so this invitation, hey, you live in this world that's full of complexity. It's not this like, so I don't know what to do. I guess just fear God and keep his commandments. It's like, no, this is what it was always about. This is the whole duty. Revere him. Worship him. Stand in awe of him. Stand in humility before him. Trust him. Enjoy his love. Delight in him. Adore him. Draw near to him. And draw near to him saying, I want to learn to follow your way of life. You've made me. You're the creator. I'm, I'm the creature. You made me. You made us. You made this world. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of humanity. And he gives this grounding statement to close the whole book. For God will bring every deed, everything that happens, everything you do, we brought into judgment. Not just the outward things, not just the public things, even the secret things of our heart will be brought into judgment before the creator. And he will, dis- he will discern what he has the prerogative to discern, whether it be good or evil. And this last little note is such a powerful note at the end of Ecclesiastes because it's, it's anticipating a day when God will sort it all out. God is gonna sort it all out. We're introduced to this idea, we call it pro- progressive revelation that Ecclesiastes is written at a point in time. It wasn't a time where somebody like sat down and wrote the whole Bible. 
The Bible is written over a millennia by a number of different authors in different times, and, and the revelation, what they had revealed to them, progressed, right? And so there are times where the, the earlier moments of the writing of the Torah's pen, and then later moments on the kind of heels of the disobedience, the people's disobedience in Israel, the prophets would reflect on that and reflect on Torah, more is revealed. All of it had the sense that it was headed somewhere, from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, it says this whole world's headed towards the need for a Messiah, a need for someone to come and to redeem the world from the curse, to forgive us of our rebellion, to forgive us of our sin, to heal our hearts, to give us a, a, a way, a better way to live, to show us what it means to be human. And that's what Jesus came into this world to do. The book of Ecclesiastes is written as a part of a progressing narrative that's leading towards Jesus, the need for Jesus. And so it pushes us to him. How do, we, how do we navigate in life under the sun? Well, this world needs Jesus. We need divine intervention to bring forgiveness of our own sin that brought the pain of the curse and futility and death and corruption of the world. We need forgiveness from God. We need to be reconciled to the God that we rejected. We need a God that can take these hearts that are now bent and corrupted with all this complexity where we have the image of God in us. Every human being is created with dignity and value and worth and reflects God's image in meaningful ways. And every human being is also full of sin and, and bent motives and corrupted desires in disordered loves. And we need, we need a God to heal that, to give us this sense of what does it look like to trust in God again and to learn to follow his way. And that's what Jesus came to do. He showed us what it means to be human. And he laid down his life on the cross, taking upon himself our sin, which led to the death in the world. And he took death upon himself. He took upon himself the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin in order that he might atone for us to offer for us a sacrifice for our sins. We'll celebrate this in Christmas. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He came to bring salvation, not just like so you go to heaven when you die, but to heal the world of the fundamental problem, to heal you and I and all who would trust in Jesus of our rebellion, to forgive us, to heal us. And he has promised not just to heal us as individuals, but to heal the whole world, to establish a kingdom where we can live and move and breathe and work and relate and enjoy and eat and drink and feast and rest and explore and adventure. We get to do it all forever. That's where the whole world's headed. This is the kingdom of God, and it's already begun in Christ now. Ecclesiastes is pushing us to trust in Jesus and to learn to follow his way of life. This is what you were made for. This is who you were designed to be. This is where the whole world is headed. It is headed there. It will get there. He's going to accomplish his mission. The question is, can you and I right now, as we navigate in life under the sun, can we learn right now to fear God and to keep his commandments and to let this wisdom push us to Jesus the one who loves us, and he demonstrated the love of God for us so beautifully in his death on the cross. The one who forgives us and shows grace to us as we fumble our way around and we struggle and we make mistakes and we doubt and we're confused and we, and we fall and we get back up and we walk backwards and we try out the old things again and we realize, ah, oh, man, I'm going back to my old ways. That's not the way of life. That's a way towards death. And we learn again and he still is gracious and his steadfast love is just new every morning. His mercies are there and he's just gracious with us as we're learning to follow him and to become who you're made to be. He is rehumanizing the world. He's healing humanity and we, we are on that journey right now, today. We're on that journey. Well, we trust that there's a day when he will come again and all that pain, all that darkness will seem like, in the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, it'll, it'll seem like light and momentary affliction. All that hevel, all that chaos, all that devastation, all that death, even death itself, will feel like light, momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that he has in store for all who trust in him. The book of Ecclesiastes is pushing us to Jesus, to worship him, to trust him, to adore him, and to follow him. May God help us to be a community that does that with faithfulness and with joy and invites others along the journey with us. Let's pray.
And Jesus, we come right now and we say thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Would you help us as a community to learn to trust you, to love your authority, to love it, even when it's hard for us, even when it feels so culturally counterintuitive, even when it's poking at our disordered desires and it's challenging our our assumptions. Help us to love your word and to learn, to relearn what what we were made to, to trust in in our original design, to trust your goodness, to trust your authority, to trust your love, and to learn, to learn to follow your way of life, to learn who, to be who you designed us to be. Help us to be a community that can show grace to one another as we navigate this and fumble our way through it. Help us to be a community that can invite the world and our neighbors and our colleagues and our coworkers and our classmates to see you, to see your love, to trust in you and to join us as a community that's learning to follow the way of Jesus. And so we need you for this. Uh, We need your help, Holy Spirit. And would you help us even today, we pray in Christ's name, amen. I wanna invite you all uh, to stand as we close our time through this journey. We've been praying the prayer through Ecclesiastes all the way through, uh, reminding us uh, of where true hope and true joy is found. And so would you pray this with me as you prepare hearts? Actually, I want to invite also communion servers to make your way forward as well uh, as we pray this together. Pray this with me. Father in heaven, free us from our exhausting efforts to seek satisfaction under the sun. Help us to trust in your presence and walk in your ways even when we are disoriented by the pains and perplexities of life. Increase our passion to live for Jesus, who alone offers lasting joy and unshakable hope. And let our joy and hope in Christ shine like light in the darkness, such that others will be drawn to your saving love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.